Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. October 1st is the centennial of Fannie Lou Hamer's birth. Coming up, we'll hear from the woman who created the musical, Fannie Lou, all about the voting and civil rights activist. Excerpts will be performed at Yale's Woolsey Hall this weekend. We'll hear more. That's later. Also, what does it mean to love thy neighbor? The Connecticut Council for Interreligious Understanding is tackling that question at a community dinner next week. We'll be joined by some participants who will talk about why we all have something to learn from the Great Commandment. But first, what are the top security issues facing the United States? That's one of the questions that will be tackled at the Global Security Forum happening this weekend at Goodwin College in East Hartford. The forum's hosted by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. Ellen Lapson will be among the speakers. She's director of international security program at Shar School of Government and Public Policy at George Mason University. She serves on a number of academic and other non-governmental boards related to international security and diplomacy and is a weekly columnist for worldpoliticsreview.com. Ellen joins us from NPR studios in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. I understand your talk this weekend is titled The Return of the Nuclear Arms Race. Should we be worried? Should we, Ellen? So we've got a debate going on here about whether the North Korean situation is somehow significantly more dangerous than it's been in the past. And, of course, if we compare it to Iran, uh, that's another situation that could get worse if the United States walks away from the agreement that was negotiated in 2015 with Iran. So I do think the North Korean, the Northeast Asia region in general, is now a few degrees hotter uh, in terms of security risks and dangers than it has been in the past. One is the reason is the actual achievements of the North Korean government in, you know, developing and successfully testing uh, more advanced and reliable uh, missiles and uh, warheads on them. And not 100 percent successful, but they're moving in the right direction um, for their own security purposes. And the second is, of course, the role of China, of whether China is a reliable partner of the United States in trying to defuse some of these regional tensions or whether China really has a different agenda in pursuing its own security interests in the region. So 2017, uh, in part because of our own election, but in part because of developments that are purely in the Asian arena, is a little scarier than I think we've had in the past. Can you give us some context to the nuclear arms race? It's something we focused on during the Cold War, but with all this heightened attention on North Korea, the rhetoric between Kim Jong-un and President Trump, um, and I had started off by asking you how worried we should be. How do you interpret the rhetoric, and could it lead to miscalculation? So I think you've got the right way to think about it, which is it would be a war by mistake, not a war that was definitely a purposeful, you know, coordinated decision of of governments. But in this period of signaling where both parties are prone to making, I think, dramatic uh, bullying gestures towards each other, there is always the risk that one party or the other will actually think this is a real imminent threat and feel obliged to 
take some kind of action. So President Trump does believe that, you know, coercion uh, and psychological pressure on the North Koreans, including use of military demonstrations in the region, uh, is the right way to go. He thinks that that will somehow deter the North Korean leader. The North Korean leader could misinterpret or his advisors could say this is an imminent attack uh, and they could, you know, feel that they had to respond in kind. So it is, you know, one can still argue that at this level of rhetorical exchanges by the two leaders that it's posturing, it's not the real preparations for war. But there's always that danger, and it's maybe at the 5 to 15 percent chance of, you know, likelihood that uh, one party, what the national security systems in one party or the other will actually interpret it as an immediate and real threat and feel that they have to take new measures, and then a process of escalation begins. Uh, I don't think it's the intention of the U.S. government uh, to pursue that course now. I think there is still a belief that coercive diplomacy, economic strangulation, uh, you know, coordination with China are still viable tools for the United States to use in, in trying to uh, influence the behavior of North Korea. But um, we're all a little rattled by the, these, this, this rhetorical escalation and whether these, these leaders in both countries um, may find themselves a little bit cornered by their own uh, language. What other tools do we have to resolve nuclear tensions? You mentioned whether China is a reliable partner in this. Well, we've always assumed that China agrees with us that a nuclear-armed North Korea is a danger. It's an immediate neighbor to them. It doesn't uh, give them you know, much reassurance to have a regime that they don't completely get along with, and yet they feel that they have to somehow big, be the patron, the big brother, uh, the, um, you know, the, the more reliable uh, interlocutor with the North Koreans. So the Chinese agree with us that a nuclear-armed North Korea is a bad thing, but, but that's not their only interest in North Korea. So I think that the disconnect sometimes between the United States and the countries that are immediate neighbors of North Korea is that we're using the economic sanctions at sort of no cost to us. We, are, we can ratchet up economic pressure on this government um, without any immediate effect on us. For the neighbors, there's always that desire to also avoid complete collapse of North Korean society. They don't want refugees. They don't want starvation. They don't want... So that the economic tools that they're using are tools that they use with some ambivalence. Um, and in the end, we know that the Chinese never really want to bring the North Koreans all the way to their knees. You know, they, they still will believe that the better part of valor is to allow this country to somehow survive economically. So we're using the economic instruments of coercive diplomacy with slightly different purposes or intentions. And the North Koreans probably understand that. They understand that they can play these external powers off of each other. We mentioned China. What about uh, Russia's role in all of this? So Russia is, you know, I think, ag again, in general agreement that a nuclear-armed North Korea is, uh, you know, a risk to international peace and security. Uh, I don't see them right now as important players in the UN deliberations as China is. But, you know, with Russia, and I think that our uh, discussion in Hartford tomorrow and Saturday morning will, will explore this, 
you know, the achievements of U.S.-Russian arms control are not a permanent uh, given. We have to keep working at that nuclear dialogue as well. And I think there is concern, perhaps in response to American plans under the Obama administration and now under Trump, to modernize our own nuclear weapons arsenal. It can always trigger a, a balancing gesture by the Russians. Um, so I think we, we do have a nuclear future that is more dynamic and dynamic in a neutral or negative way, not, not suggesting that this is a good thing. We have a lot of countries that are, you know, expanding, refining, improving their nuclear arsenals. We have to add, you know, India and Pakistan to that list as well. So it's not a stable nuclear environment right now. If we move on and talk about Iran and the nuclear deal, I understand there's a deadline coming up and whether uh, Trump would certify this before Congress, that Iran is following the deal. Uh, with all the talk that he wants to withdraw, is that something that is likely to happen? And what would be the fallout, Ellen? So I think President Trump is trying to balance uh, his campaign promise, which is it was the worst deal ever and we should never have done it, terrible, terrible, with um, the reality that his national security team, even people who are deeply worried about Iran's behavior overall, but those advisors are saying to him, better to stick with an imperfect agreement than to have no agreement at all. And that a no, you know, if this agreement were somehow to be terminated, um, then Iran is absolutely free to do whatever it feels it needs to do for its own national security. So there, I think President Trump is certainly getting, uh, you know, pushback on the notion that you can just walk away from this agreement and there would be no consequences. So what I think he's trying to do is uh, find a, a clever solution where he doesn't certify, but he, nor does he declare that he can prove that Iran is in material breach of the agreement. So it, it's pretty clear from all the experts, including at the International Atomic Energy Agency that inspects Iran continuously, they have permanent presence and access to the Iranian facilities, and they are insistent that there is no material breach. So I think what President Trump may be trying to do is to do a, an American-only political, put down a political marker, but not trigger any formal, um, because he doesn't have the grounds to trigger a formal uh, revisiting of the, of the agreement overall. The Europeans and the Chinese and the Russians are crystal clear that they think the agreement is still a very positive contribution to international security, and they will absolutely not follow an American uh, lead in trying to renegotiate it or change the terms of the agreement. This was uh, agreed upon under the President Obama administration. Remind us uh, some of the, the key points to the Iran nuclear deal. So the Iran nuclear agreement that was achieved in 2015, it was actually the European Union that was the lead negotiator in the United States, was one of six parties uh, negotiating with Iran, uh, was a, a process of many, many years of trying to persuade the Iranians to basically uh, suspend their, you know, some of their nuclear enrichment activities, to dismantle parts of their program. So they had to literally shut down centrifuges. They had to send uh, heavy water out of the country, which the Russians have agreed to work with them on relocating. The U.S. has actually been part of a commercial deal 
uh, to, uh, you know, get some of the heavy water from Iranian reactors out of Iranian territory. Um, they've had to, sus they've dismantled, they completely dismantled and disabled a major uh, reactor facility by pouring cement into it and completely disabling it. So the Iranians took a number of measures that do not constitute a 100% deconstruction of all of their nuclear activities. They will continue to be able to enrich to a very low level, not weapons-grade uh, uranium. They will um, be able to continue some research and development, but they have to demonstrate that it has no applied military purposes. And in exchange, uh, they were uh, promised relief from the UN and national level sanctions that were related to their nuclear activities. So very unlike North Korea, the Iranians were eventually persuaded that their own economic interests uh, were compelling enough to allow them to forego a program that they were very proud of, that they were, you know, understandably proud of having been able to work in isolation uh, on a, on a world-class, you know, research uh, nuclear program. The Iranians, in the language of the agreement, they say they are permanently uninterested in ever getting nuclear weapons. Now, that is a political statement that, in theory, could change um, under different political circumstances, but uh, the critics of the agreement assume that Iran still has a secret desire to eventually be a nuclear weapons state. I think they there may be a gray area where they are very proud to be a nuclear, technologically capable country that in possible future circumstances could make them revisit their decision about nuclear weapons. But they ha this current revolutionary government has declared that um, they are, you know, permanently uninterested in acquiring nuclear weapons. So, you know, I do think that it's a give and take process and Iran has to believe that this agreement was still uh, of benefit to their own economic interests and their national security interests. And um, so I think that, you know, this is, it's an open question. It's not something that is permanently resolved. In addition, some of the um, uh, commitments in the agreement have sunset clauses. So certain features of the agreement will, uh, you know, expire in 10 years or 15 years. Others are more open-ended. And, you know, the Iranian goal is right now they're still in the penalty box, if you will. They are a, con a country that had been deemed to be not in compliance with its non-proliferation uh, obligations and responsibilities. Iran's goal is at the end of the life cycle of this agreement to just be a regular member of the non-proliferation treaty in full compliance. Um, that's something that, you know, maybe Iran's neighbors and other uh, members of the Western community are never going to quite be comfortable with that, but I think that is their uh, objective. You mentioned earlier uh, the International Atomic Energy Association um, has said that there has been no breach uh, to date of this agreement, but critics uh, would are arguing that. Uh, what is Israel's take on uh, feeling safe with this deal? Well, I think from the Israeli prime minister, we still get such deep, deep anxiety about Iran's intentions, Iran's hostility to Israel. Uh, Iran's regional activities, its its strong support for Hezbollah, which has gone to war with Israel a couple of times, the Lebanese militia group. Um, so I think the deep anxiety in Israel is about Iran in its totality, not its nuclear program in particular. 
many of Iran's national security, uh, Israel's national security experts actually think the agreement does serve Israeli security interests in the short to medium term. It's not a permanent uh, guarantee that Iran will never be a military or a nuclear threat to Israel, but um, at least some people in the Israeli establishment uh, would agree with Trump's advisors that better to keep an imperfect deal than to have no agreement at all. When Prime Minister Netanyahu meets with Trump, I think that the two of them, you know, look at Iran in its totality and still see uh, a very troubling pattern of Iran's, you know, regional behavior, regional activities as somehow, uh, you know, of, of grave threat to Israel. And Ellen, remind us again how many nations have nuclear weapons today? So there's nine countries that are nuclear capable now. Uh, we, you know, there's always this sort of protocol of you know, whether we acknowledge openly that Israel is a nuclear capable country. I think there's no dispute about that. Uh, but North Korea is now, you know, has joined the ranks. Um, so North Korea, so unlike uh, Iran, we don't really, you know, we are past the point where we can persuade a country to stop short of a nuclear capability. So North Korea is the more acute case than, uh, than Iran. Iran, we were able to stop them before they had gone to the fin gotten to the finish line. How does President Trump's push towards nationalism affect how other countries see the need for nuclear weapons? You know, this idea of everyone out for themselves versus America, you know, being this in this world police role. Well, I think that's a very important question of whether the countries that feel threatened either by Iran or by North Korea or conceivably by Pakistan or India, you know, might rethink um, whether they have a, you know, security partnership with the United States or part of some kind of more formal alliance structure if they no longer see the United States as providing that um, security guarantee, and that's implicitly up to and including America's nuclear weapons to be used to protect another country, um, if they no longer believe that that American commitment is, is ironclad and solid and reliable, it may trigger a conversation internally. Now, getting you know a nuclear weapons program is not an easy, it's usually a many decades long endeavor so it's not something that a country can do very quickly or easily but we sh you know we should think about uh, Turkey Taiwan uh, Japan uh, South Korea there are a number of countries that have considered having a nuclear weapons program but always believed that they could defend their security interests in other ways principally in its in a relationship with the United States you know, I don't think we yet see any evidence that any of those countries have flipped the switch and have decided that they're definitely going in that direction. But certainly in Japan and Korea, we see the beginnings of a, of a new debate about that. Ellen Labson is director of the International Security Program at Shar School of Government and Public Policy at George Mason University. She serves on a number of academic and other non-governmental boards related to international security and diplomacy. Also, a weekly columnist for worldpoliticsreview.com. Ellen will be part of the World Affairs Council of Connecticut's Global Security Forum happening this weekend. Uh, more information at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Ellen joined us today from NPR in Washington, D.C. Ellen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. 
Coming up, political divisions of late have made it harder for some to listen to different viewpoints. The Connecticut Council for Interreligious Understanding believes that efforts to understand each other better will help us hurt each other less. We'll find out what they hope to achieve at a community dinner next week, and we want to hear from you too. How are you bridging the divisions you may feel in your local community or within your families? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The motto for the Connecticut Council for Interreligious Understanding is, when we understand each other more, we hurt each other less. They're having a community dinner next week where community leaders will talk about what love thy neighbor means to them. What does it mean for you? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In the studio with me now is Terry Schmidt, Executive Director of the Connecticut Council for Interreligious Understanding. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you. For our listeners who may not know about your organization, tell us how long it's been around and what some of your goals are. Yeah, we have been in existence for nearly 25 years. Um, our goals have always been educational. Uh, we really believe that uh, that religious illiteracy is an issue in our communities uh, and among people, uh, even within denominations, but certainly across the panoply of, uh, of religions that are out there and that are here. Uh, we really don't know enough about each other. And when we don't know about each other, we tend to be afraid and fear leads to actions that are unfortunate. So we we try to increase in a variety of ways uh, people's understanding of their own religion, other people's religions, and the diversity that exists here. It's an interesting term you used, religious uh, illiteracy. Um, so the idea that people may not understand the beliefs behind a certain faith tradition? The beliefs, the practices, the perspectives, uh, the culture. I mean, religion is a part of our culture. Uh, even irreligion is a part of our culture, and we need to understand all of those things. So the more that we understand uh, uh, other people, the less we're likely to demonize them, the less we're likely to be afraid of them, and the more we're able to accept each other. I mentioned the event Love Thy Neighbor happening uh, next Monday. Some of the people who will be speaking at that event are also in studio with me. I want to uh, welcome into the studio Heidi Hadsel, president of the Hartford Seminary. Heidi, wel- Heidi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Also, Reverend Stephen Camp, senior pastor at the Faith Congregational Church in Hartford. Reverend Camp, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Uh, so I'll start with you, Heidi, uh, because you're president of the Hartford Seminary. Talk a little bit more about uh, what Terry was saying about uh, religious uh, illiteracy and this idea that the more we make a concerted effort to learn about each other, whether it's religious background, where we come from, um, you know, that we, we tend to then be able to understand and not be so quick to uh, vilify someone if we don't agree with some of the viewpoints, political viewpoints lately these days. Yeah, um, I think I think um, understanding is key to uh, lowering the walls between us um, and seeing the people uh, behind what um, what their religion is, the people who carry that religion and for whom it's meaningful, um, and seeing them as people just like one is. Um, I think. Um, All too often, we uh, shore up our own sense of our own religious identity um, by um, thinking of it as over and against another religious identity. Uh, So I feel better and stronger somehow, or one does, um, um, if um, while I'm saying um, I am this, 
Um, I'm pointing to the other and saying I'm not that. And that is that has no truth. We have the truth and so forth. And so it's not just understanding. Um, it's it's breaking down uh, breaking down the way one understands one's own tradition so that one can adhere to and love one's own tradition and still respect and know another's and doesn't feel that need to say, I have to be right and you have to be wrong. When people are part of a church community, they feel um, like they are part of uh, something bigger. Uh, but at times, it can also be easy to generalize uh, if you know someone is a particular faith tradition. Can you talk a little bit more, Reverend Kim, from what Heidi was saying about uh, that when people aren't understanding where people are coming from, that's where you tend to have the miscommunication and misunderstanding? Well, people come to church uh, or they come go to synagogue or, t- or, or mosque and and whatever their religious uh, understanding is, and they, they tend to want to know about what, what their community is about. Um, but making a wider understanding, coming off the margins and, and finding out what is going on inside other communities is really something that, that uh, it ought to in, interest all of us. And, uh, and so faith leaders need to to be about widening people's understandings and, and, and helping people to, to see the other, to see people as, they, uh, in, as, as being people who are contributing to the whole. Uh, I think that's what religion helps us do. And so the more that we are able to open and widen that circle, the better off all of us are. How tricky has it been in the last couple of years? Talking well, to your congregation about that. Well, we, we work hard at it. We try to make sure that we bring other voices. We've had uh, Muslim uh, imams and uh, rabbis speak in our congregation. We, we try to do things that, that will broaden the understanding of what that religion is about love. It is about caring and so that our neighbor is someone we need to respect, we need to to uh, see as someone that is important to us in our understanding of our faith. Tell us more about where love thy neighbor comes from. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's in all of our religious understandings. It's not, it's not uh, just the, uh, about Christianity or, or, or any other. Nobody has a market on that. So we need to figure out how we say it together. It just feels important that we do that together. So this organization is, has an important role in our society and in our community. Uh, Terry, can you uh, talk a little bit about a little bit more about why you decided to call this event "Love Thy Neighbor"? Well, we actually uh, had an event back in January uh, where we invited people to come, and uh, the Archdiocese of Hartford was uh, generous in allowing us to use the cathedral and welcoming us and participating in the event. And we had leadership from a number of uh, religious communities, including Sikhs and Muslims and Unitarians at that event. Actually, all nine of our religions participated in one way or another, but we had speakers from those as well. We we thought this would be a second, this dinner would be a second way, a follow-up on the same notion of let's raise up a value uh, that is common to all of our religions, that is shared by all of our religions, and let's do something unique and special with it. So uh, one of our board members, a guy by the name of Jim Friedman, uh, who was brilliant, uh, came up with this idea of let's reach out to leaders in the community 
not religious people necessarily, although there are some uh, they're included as well, but other leaders in the community, leaders from business, leaders from the arts, leaders from the educational community, uh, leaders from medicine, see if they can come and talk with each other and share. Because we do think that our society uh, right now is struggling to speak civilly uh, with one another, especially when we differ. Uh, in this case, we all agree on loving thy neighbor, uh, but we're going to hear some very different perspectives. We even have um, uh, uh, a Connecticut police trooper uh, as one of our speakers, which I'm, I have to admit I'm really looking forward to listening to what she has to say. What does it mean to love thy neighbor if you're a, uh, if you're a police officer? So this Love Thy Neighbor event's been in the works for a few months now? Uh, yes, definitely. Through, through the whole summer, really. The reason I'm asking that is because when you um, pay attention to the news, uh, you see these moments of great divide, including what happened in Charlottesville uh, yes. with uh, these violent rallies. And it's very, again, easy. I mean, it sounds we want to be united, but at times when we see fellow citizens doing things that upset us morally, deeply, how do we respond to that without feeling that anger, to be open to listening to someone across from you that doesn't believe in the same things you do? Well, and that is the point in many ways of, of the dinner, and that's the origins of it in some ways. A lot of people experience exactly what you're talking about, and they all say things like, well, somebody ought to do something different. Somebody ought to, you know, they ought to fix that situation. Well, we're the they right at the moment. We, we are providing the forum, one of many forums, I have to admit, that we provide, but one of the forums where people can come and share openly and honestly and civilly. And yeah, we get angry with each other, but that isn't the end of it, that you have to learn how to relate to one another. And that's what this is all about. This is where we live. Uh, today, we're talking about an event happening next week, uh, hosted by the Connecticut Council for Interreligious Understanding. It's called Love Thy Neighbor, and uh, it's being put on again by CCIU. Some of the participants are in studio with me. Uh, Terry Schmitz, Executive Director of the organization, Heidi Hatzel, President of the Hartford Seminary, and Reverend Stephen Camp, Senior Pastor at the Faith Congregational Church in Hartford. I wanted to ask both of you the same question. When we, when we see these very divisive events uh, in front of us and it does impact us each personally in different ways. How do we bridge that divide? What do you say to your colleagues, your family, Heidi? And I'll be curious, uh, Reverend Camp, um, how you respond as well. I think maybe um, I, I would answer that with um, two key things. Um, and the first is um, getting in touch with um, your ability, my ability, your ability to see the humanity of the other person. Um, so um, un underlying your anger, underneath your anger at that other person that you disagree with, uh, recognizing uh, the fundamental humanity, the shared humanity and shared worth of that other human being. Uh, and if you can do that, uh, then you can see the other person and um, not just hear their angry words or the words you don't agree with. And uh, your guard drops a little bit. Uh, and the other thing is what we've been talking about here is finding things in common. Um, uh, taking the time to say, oh, um, there are values we share. We disagree on this or we disagree on that, but we do have common values. Um, and taking the time to uh, discover those common values and um, that gives one a place to begin to build. 
um, not necessarily to agree on the issue, um, but to begin to build. Um, and kind of like we do in families when we disagree, we find ways of um, continuing to love each other um, and respect each other um, and even talk to each other in the midst of disagreement. Reverend Camp. I, I, I do get angry sometimes when I, when I hear about a Charlottesville or in the news today about a Puerto Rico that's not receiving the kind of uh, uh, aid that they need right now. Right now. Uh, it just feels uh, that religion has a, a voice and we need to use the voice. And the voice is centered in love. Uh, and if we're if we're not able to to bring together the voices that religion holds, the weight that it holds, the depth that it holds, and put that alongside of all the other conversations in our society, then we are missing the point of religion. We are missing the point of love, loving our neighbor. Uh, and and I think that we have a role to play, and we ought to to do it as as vigorously as we can. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's uh, it makes you angry sometimes that we don't do all that we can. And this is one example, I think, this dinner, just small way in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, but it reaches lots further than just Hartford. It reaches uh, those who need a voice. And, and I think that that's what we're trying to do. How does your message change when you're speaking to someone who uh, may be an atheist and they don't get anything out of the idea of religion and they don't want to? Yeah, but still, the word love, the people who are atheists, agnostics, still care about others. And, and, and that is what we ought to focus on is how do we care about one another uh, and so we all have languages and language patterns that we use, and 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 CCIU has has a, a commitment to the basic bedrock understanding that loving one's neighbor is vital and important. I want to turn back uh, to Terry Schmidt again, who's executive director of the Connecticut Council for Interreligious Understanding. Um, how did you respond to pushback that you may have received from the community um, when you started doing these events or your, your members uh, that who are talking about uh, certain faith traditions or different beliefs uh, uh, before their congregations and it didn't necessarily uh, reach everyone? Well, we really haven't gotten a tremendous amount of pushback. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. And although, admittedly, the people that that respond respond uh, to us because they're supportive of it. But I, I, we've gotten an awful lot of people who have said things along the lines of, "Boy, I am so glad you are doing something like this. Somebody needed to do this. I am so glad you're stepping up." I would say, though, that there uh, there is pushback, or there is um, not antagonism, but uh, not even benign neglect, uh, there are those folks who simply don't want to get along with others or don't want to see uh, one whole human family in diversity, but they would like it to see it in their way and only their way. And they actually don't pay very much attention to us. Um, no one has actively come out against what we do, um, in, in, at least not in this kind of a forum. Uh, some of the things we do do get a little bit more uh, pushback, but it's part of a broader uh, Islamophobia that, uh, and 
that happens. So when you aren't able to reach uh, the people that um, may benefit the most from this message, uh, how do you hope to do it? I mean, do you feel like doing more of these events, Love Thy Neighbor, can, and maybe not focusing on, on leaders in the community, but just regular people who want to come together and say, this is how I uh, walk the walk and talk the talk? We certainly uh, uh, have not limited <laughs> our perspectives on what we're willing or interested in doing, that's for sure. Uh, and we're certainly open to more uh, ideas. Uh, this is the first time that we've done this kind of thing, so uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Um, obviously, uh, if, if, if no one takes that first step, you can't take steps two, three, and four. And we really see this as a critical first step that uh, involves enough people that other folks will get interested in. Uh, the, we hope that other the communities, because we reached out to as many different kinds of communities, we hope that the educational community gets interested. We hope that the uh, business community gets more interested. Uh, I will say this, that there are a lot of people out there who would rather not even think about religion at all. Uh, they have their own and they don't want to think about anybody else's. We get that kind of, it's not pushback exactly, it's running away from. And we do think that this uh, kind of an event and other things that we do uh, will help people embrace each other's religion and see each other's religion as a positive con contribution to the world. Heidi, how do you see your role in next week's event and where do you want to see this go? Well, I think um, one of the one of the um, uh, advantages of doing this event and the the other kinds of events that that CCIU um, does um, is it provides for people an alternative narrative about religion uh, because the dominant narrative about religion in our day and age is that it's divisive, it's violent, it's um, um, warmongering, it um, builds walls um, between people and so forth. And so this is a narrative about religion, and um, the evidence is right there in front of you um, with the people. Um, it's a narrative about religion that says, no, religion, religion is, can be constructive, um, it can be peace-building, um, it can contribute to the larger social good. It, you don't have to be religious to want religion to contribute to the larger social good. Um, and um, the statistics show that one in five people in the United States are now born in a multi-religious family. And so there are a lot of people out there who are looking for answers about how, how, do, I, how do I live in that kind of a world um, and um, flourish and how do others flourish in that kind of a world. So this kind of an organization really tries to respond to that. Reverend Camp, who do you want to see in that audience on Monday? Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'd like to see people that have an open mind. I'd like to see people who are willing to to struggle with uh, maybe a religious perspective that they do not have or even struggle with a perspective of uh, a person who comes at it without a, a base of religion's understanding. It, it, it needs to be a gathering where we, we can find some common words and some common uh, themes that we can take forward um, if we're able to do that. I also hope it's a moment that, that is inspiring that people are inspired to do better and be better. If we can do something like that in, in the span of a dinner hour, it will, it will make our whole city better. 
And so because uh, what we take away from the event is as important as being at the event. And I, I just am very pleased that this is happening. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. But I hope at the end of the day that there's a, a, a kind of, well, a Christian word, a witness to something good. Reverend Stephen Camp, Senior Pastor at the Faith Congregational Church in Hartford. Thank you. Thank you. Also, Heidi Hatzel, President of the Hartford Seminary, and Terry Schmidt, Executive Director of the Connecticut Council for Interreligious Understanding. Next week, CCIU hosts their first Love Thy Neighbor dinner. More information at ccfiu.org. Thank you both for coming in. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nathanshul. Up next, do you know the story of Fannie Lou Hamer? We'll tell her more after the break. Now don't think I'm bold, but my mama told me to love thy neighbor, and you will find your labor a great deal easier. Life will be breezier if you love thy neighbor. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you know the story of Fannie Lou Hamer? October 1st marks the centennial of the birth of the voting rights activist. And on Sunday at Yale's Woolsey Hall, excerpts from the musical Fannie Lou will be performed. On the phone with us now is the creator of that musical, Felicia Hunter. Felicia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Also uh, with us from the uh, studios at Yale University, Catherine Lofton, Professor of Religious Studies, American Studies, and History at Yale University. Catherine, welcome to the show as well. Thank you. For people who may not have heard of Fannie Lou Hamer, give us a brief history of her. Catherine. Fannie Lou is an incredible woman, born the 20th child of sharecroppers and who herself was a sharecropper for many, many years and then discovered activism through her own experience, uh, attempted to register to vote, was denied the right to do that and told that she failed a literacy test even though she was literate. She then, as a response to that, uh, became quite involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and founded a Democratic Party, the Mississippi Freedom Party in Mississippi to counter the very pro-segregation Democratic Party in Mississippi. But she became iconic because she spoke time and again in quiet, insistent ways about the the way that the political system excluded her voice. And she also became iconic because she sang. She sang spirituals, especially This Little Light of Mine and Go Tell It at the Mountain at some of the most famous protests of the civil rights movement. So she became an embodiment not only of her suffering and her political exclusion, but also her resistance and triumph. I wanted our listeners to hear a little bit of Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, the clip that we're about to play, uh, again, she, because she was involved in the civil rights movement, she wanted seats for uh, black residents at the Democratic National Convention. Here she is testifying in front of the DNC Credentials Committee. At the same time, uh, President Lyndon Johnson didn't want coverage of this speech that Fannie Lou was about to give. So he had his own last minute press conference. I understand the news still gave uh, attention to what she had to say. Let's hear a little bit of Fannie Lou Hamer. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress, I pulled my dress down and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Medka Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, 
I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Felicia Hunter, again, went on to write a musical about Fannie Lou, Fannie Lou Hamer, who we just heard uh, speaking uh, back in uh, 1964. Felicia, when did you first hear of Fannie Lou Hamer? And and I'm just curious what your reaction is to hearing her words. Yes, just uh, just an amazing woman. I grew up knowing, well, my my family is uh, uh, very much into a history and civil rights, and that's uh, one of my interests as well. So I knew the name. I grew up knowing the name Fannie Lou Hamer, and I knew that she was connected to the civil rights movement, uh, even as a child. Um, but I didn't know the extent uh, of her involvement and the extent uh, of her sacrifices until I read a biography about her. Uh, this Little Light of Mine by Kay Mills. I uh, happened to uh, be at the library, uh, one of my favorite places, and uh, they were having a, a book sale. So I was just looking through the book, saw this uh, hardcover book, a biography about F- Fannie Lou Hamer. Again, I knew the name. I uh, didn't know uh, a whole lot of detail about it. So I thought, wow, this will, uh, might be uh, interesting, and uh, let me pick this up and read it. Bought, bought this wonderful, wonderful treasure for $1, and just learned uh, some of the things that Catherine mentioned uh, about her, her, her life and uh, uh, about what what you are just uh, uh, recording that you just played uh, about her, her testimony and uh, just information uh, like that. She was jailed and beaten. What she was referring to in that testimony is uh, she was jailed and beaten uh, just for after she was able to register, helping other people to uh, register. Um, and uh, that was a very, very devastating experience uh, among several devastating experiences just try to get the right to vote. So uh, after reading this biography, uh, I was just inspired to just sit down and write. Uh, that's, that's what I do for, for fun, if you will. Uh, that's, that's my nerdy um, uh, kind of a fun experience and enjoyable experience and, and uh, personal growth experience. Uh, I, I like uh, writing music. I like writing uh, dialogue. Uh, so uh, just one thing that, that inspired me uh, to do that, one thing kind of uh, fell after the other, and I wanted to tell uh, Fannie Lou's story in an artistic way. Uh, that was my, my uh, goal to, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's my reaction. That's my contrib- contribution you, to you mentioned, uh, what I learned about her. Mm-hmm. Felicia, you mentioned the sacrifices that Fannie Lou Hamer uh, went through. I wanted to go back to Catherine Lofton, professor of religious studies, American studies and history at Yale University. Uh, obviously, she believed in the right to vote, but some of the things that propelled her to get into uh, civil rights movement. What happened to her at at a hospital when she was going in for routine routine care, Catherine? Yes, like so many uh, black women in the South, uh, Hamer was uh, given a hysterectomy while in a hospital for a very minor surgery. And this was a a procedure that she did not consent to, uh, she did not ask for, and it was not necessary for any, she had no medical problems that required it. But it was a procedure that was so common in Mississippi, that is a forced hysterectomy that was called the Mississippi appendectomy, that this was just a common way of grappling with black women's bodies. So that experience combined with her own regular encounter with small exclusions, with so moving about Fannie Lou and that, that, that clip you offered. And what made her so compelling is that she's not talking about complicated legislative issues and she's not speaking in abstract theological principles. She's saying, my life is not allowed to be free in the most basic way. And it was so compelling, as you said, they kept the cameras on her, even though everyone wanted them turned off. It's just the truth is compelling. And it was especially compelling when Fannie Lou Hamer just reiterated over and over again, this is not our America. We're almost out of time, but uh, Catherine, I just wanted to ask, what do you think Hamer would say about our political times today? 
I think she would tell the people who are finding routes to speak their truth to keep on speaking. I think she'd be very uh, excited and inspired by the ways, the creative ways of protest. And, and I think she'd be inspired by Felicia, who, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, who discovered Ron Chernow's Hamilton biography and said, let's bring this life back into the American story. I think she'd say that's what we need to hear, individual people speaking their pain, because that is a truth we cannot look away from. Uh, Felicia, tell us uh, where listeners can learn more about your musical uh, this weekend, October 1st. Yes, uh, we're performing uh, the musical at Wolsey, or excerpts from the musical, um, 11 scenes and 14 songs, uh, about half of the entire musical uh, at Wolsey Hall this Sunday, Yale University, at 3 p.m. Uh, we're also having a uh, panel discussion, experts, a uh, captain among them, um, uh, uh, Doris Dumas of the NAACP in New Haven, Jack Bryant of the Stanford NAACP, and uh, Crystal Feinster, uh, another wonderful Yale professor, uh, will uh, join in and expand on the conversation that, the, that we've had just now. Um, there will be a question and answer period at the end. Um, encourage youth to come, encourage people who do know about Fannie Lou Hamer, who don't know about Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, it's a, a two-hour celebration, which is being presented, by the way, to mark the uh, centennial of Mrs. Hamer's birth. Uh, she was born 100 years ago uh, this year, October 6, 1917. So uh, that is uh, why we are honoring her at Bowlby Hall this Sunday at 3 o'clock. Well, she sounds like a woman we should all know. But thank you so yes. much, Felicia Hunter, creator of the Fannie Lee musical. As we end uh, the, the show, I wanted to play uh, a song from that musical, I Will Grow. Also, thanks to Catherine Lofton, professor uh, at Yale University. I'm not perfect at all, but if trying counts for anything, I will try. You may want me to fail, live my life through a veil. And though living isn't everything, I won't die. As I travel on my journey, I am sheltered by my past. While I strive to meet a future I've yet to know. I will step with bright distinction, spread my wings despite rejection. No matter what you do to me, I will grow. Your resistant walls may greet me, but they never will defeat.